Welcome to MTC Conversations, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Boonwurrung, the first peoples of country on which this event took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. This recording is from a 2020 conversation with dramaturg, teacher and writer Ruth Little as part of her McGeorge Fellowship with the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Theatre Company. Over the last 10 years, Little has begun to recalibrate the practices and languages we use to cohere performances and to remake notions of dramaturgy, the theoretical and practical interface between bodies, ideas, stories and an audience. A craft skill like any other, her work is renowned internationally for its audacity, deep thinking and practical application. During this conversation, Ruth Little spoke with MTC Literary Director Chris Mead about making a life in between scripts, working in the varied worlds of theatre companies and dance studios, and the art of dramaturgy. G'day, my name's Chris Mead. I'm literary director of Melbourne Theatre Company, and I'm joined by our McGeorge scholar, Ruth Little. Uh, we've had the great good fortune uh, to work with the university and uh, closely with the university on um, being part of this amazing program where people are able to join us here in Melbourne uh, who are extraordinary in their chosen field. We've had directors and writers, including Simon Stevens, Joe Penhall, Jamie Lloyd, and now Ruth Little joins us. Uh, I have a, um, well, Ruth was my first employer in the professional sphere, and I consider her my mentor in all things dramaturgical. Uh, I had just finished my PhD uh, and uh, thought, I've got to do something useful with my life. Why not be a dramaturg? <laughs> and uh, I'd, saw, I'd seen an article uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald that there was another dramaturg uh, who also had a PhD, but hers is from Cambridge. Uh, and I sent her, God, it may even have been a letter rather than an email. Yes, I can't it could remember. Have been written with fountain pen. Yes, uh, <laughs> with a quill, most certainly, <laughs> uh, from Shakespeare's dead hand. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and she gave me a job as a reader at Griffin Theatre Company, and uh, we uh, I kind of learnt from Ruth all of the things that we will now talk about about dramaturgy, uh, about the methods that she learnt, uh, the time honoured methods, um, but also we have continued that conversation over the past twenty years yep. uh, about what dramaturgy is, about the rules, uh, and about its very necessary evolution. Um, uh, so I'll just briefly give you a little, uh, yes, as you described it, we'll now go through Ruth's credential. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> uh, Ruth Little is a dance and theatre dramaturg, a teacher and writer. Her work has encompassed national arts organisations, remote rural communities, site-specific productions, and large and small-scale exhibitions and expeditions. She lectured in English literature at the University of Sydney and was a true manager of Out of Joint Soho Theatre, an associate at the Young Vic and uh, was literary manager of the Royal Court Theatre. Ruth was associate director at Cape Farewell from 2010 to 2016, and she's dramaturg now with Akram Khan Company and has worked with Banff Arts Centre, Sadler's Wells, English National Ballet, Northern Ballet, Spitalfields Festival, Barbican, National Theatre Connections, Fuel Theatre, Siobhan Dance, 
uh, Siobhan Davies Dance, Dance Umbrella, Le Paton Libre, and many others. She's the winner of the 2012 Kenneth Tynan Award for Dramaturgy, and her publications include The Young Vic Book, The Royal Court Theatre Inside Out, uh, and the articles The Slow Art of Contemporary Expedition Islandings, uh, War in the Body, The Meteorological Body, uh, and many others besides. It's my great pleasure to welcome you back to Australia. Of course, you've actually been here for quite some time, uh, but of course to the McGeorge House, metaphorically, where you are currently uh, writing your book, the book you've wanted to write for nine years. Thank you, Chris. Yes, thanks for mentioning the nine years <laughs> of delay and... Uh, well, you've been very gainfully employed as an I international have, dramaturg. No longer, about... though. COVID has put an end to my gainful employment. So for the first time in nine years, uh, I have the opportunity to actually sit down and write the book. And that coincided absolutely beautifully and serendipitously uh, alongside all of the terrible things that COVID has produced. Um, with with the McGeorge Fellowship. So, yeah, I have been very, very happily ensconced and gratefully ensconced up at the house, beautiful house up there um, amongst... Surrounded all, by cockatoos. Yeah, surrounded by demanding and um, petulant cockatoos, which need to be fed organic almonds <laughs> several times a day. They're so hipsters. They're probably down at Proud Mary having a coffee as well. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so I've had an interesting and productive relationship with them, but but more so with 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 thought. Because um, you had to turn down. I mean, how many jobs did you lose as a result of COVID? Fourteen, did you say? Oh, I can't remember what it was altogether, but it certainly, yeah. I mean, as with so many people, and because I'm a freelancer, and have been outside institutional operations for ten years, uh, so freelancers have been very hard hit actually by COVID. I was planning to take some time this year anyway, so for me it was perhaps less of a, a deep shock. It, it has been a shock, um, but it's also been an opportunity for, for other kinds of reflection and for some foraging and gathering that I've been wanting to do for a very, very, very long time. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to the, the nine-year book, uh, <laughs> but first of all, one of the questions that I get asked all the time uh, is uh, w what's the training? What's your training? What do you know? What should you know? Um, and one of the things that Brett Sheehy, who when he before he was an artistic director, was also a dramaturg. So he was keen right. to have us talk about dramaturgy's history. Right. Um, uh, we may come briefly to that. But I suppose specifically with you, Ruth, my training was in history. Uh, but your training was, you started off at university in quite yeah. a different sphere. Yeah. You started off doing vet science. <laughs> I did start in vet science. It's been more useful for my dramaturgical work than anything I did since then. Um, that's not quite true, but it has, it actually it has, in some ways it has come full circle. Yeah, I only did a year of vet science. I wasn't very good at chemistry, uh, but I was good at words and I loved language and I loved communication by means of language, and I missed it. I missed it because there were too many formulae in vet science and not enough animals, quite frankly, in the early <laughs> days anyway, or at least they were all dead and that was depressing. I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> I think I meant to do zoology uh, but just got the forms wrong. So I went over to English literature, which was really where I, my heart was, I think, uh, and found that frustrating in other ways but I, I once you're on a path you, you do tend to build from there and so I did a PhD um, 
I just would like to say that I never applied to Cambridge. I won a scholarship <laughs> to Cambridge, which I also never applied for. I was put up by computer. I think they had just introduced computers to Sydney University in those days. I don't think the phrase humble brag existed then. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I didn't want to go to Cambridge. I wanted to go to Trinity College Dublin and I ended up at Cambridge and there I was. I did my PhD uh, on witchcraft and scapegoating and and I'm glad I did it, but I then put that aside and literally fell into. I mean, my my interest was in language and and communication and and the the, the qualities of language by which we bring about change in others. It, it was what language did, uh, rather than what it said, that I found particularly interesting because I was looking at rhetorical structures and devices around how we create scapegoats, how we demonise others. So I think I always had a. A, a, an interest in the the gestural, uh, if you like, the manipulative qualities of language because they're still so utterly, utterly relevant now. Uh, so I, because a lot of my work had been in Renaissance drama, uh, I was working with theatrical works in theatrical contexts, um, but looking perhaps at the political and the sociological implications of some of those texts. Uh, I, I fell into, I didn't fall into dramaturgy, I fell into play reading um, because I was a reader. That was what I was doing with my but this, life. And this raises a really interesting tension which yeah. exists to this day. Yeah. Uh, the kind of fraught relationship between the academy yeah. and working theatres. Yeah. For many theatre practitioners, they're sceptical and uh, alarmed by, yeah. sceptical about and alarmed by uh uh, academics, I suppose, is the simplest way of describing it. <laughs> Terrifying. Um, yeah. Because, you know, they're, they're often, well, let's not characterise anyone in a, a negative light, but it's certainly true that so much of what happens in the theatre is mm. getting a show up mm. uh, and in front of an audience, mm. and that's not quite the analytical, the same analytics mm. uh, as as, uh, as academics employ. Yeah. And so when you started uh, bridging that gap... Yeah. Um, that was tricky. Yeah, I had to do a lot of unlearning. I think unlearning is one of the most important parts of of any any um, development of process or or creative engagement. Actually, is is unlearning the habits that you bring into a situation or or a process, um, and and listening and learning new habits and uh, and then recognising those as habits too and continuing to test and challenge them. And I, yeah, I had a quite, quite a steep learning curve. Graham Wybrow was literary manager at the Royal Court when I was there. He's he's back at the court now. He's been on many journeys since then, but he's he's been working with them for a while. Uh, and he he was also a very good editor, Graham, and he, he undid a lot of my... Uh, rhetorical flourishes. I learned a lot of rhetoric <laughs> in writing a PhD about rhetoric and I was damn well going to employ them myself. And so you, you have to be brought back to a kind of plainness because it's not about you intervening between the text and its its responders, whether that's readers or directors or audiences. Uh, it is almost, in a sense, about making yourself as transparent as possible to the intentions of the writer uh, and that and that does mean clearing the the foliage of your own critical response out of the way um, to let the play come through on its own terms and then ask questions about those terms. So yes, a big, long, steep learning curve took several years. I went from being a reader there to becoming a senior reader. 
And then I actually came back to Australia for a while and was literary manager at Griffin Theatre Company. And so that was great because I was able to work in a small company, but to hit the ground running because, of course, you go straight into commissioning and building relationships, durational relationships with writers. Um, and that was when I think I started to feel, well, then and, and in subsequent positions uh, in London theatres after that, that was when I started to feel almost a sort of a similar a boundary was existing to the one between the academy and um, and theatre as practice and that was within theatres themselves there was a boundary between playwrights as writers uh, and and creative teams but primarily directors as as presenters and producers and makers of the work and I, I've always had a real issue. I mean, I remember it from when I was at school. It used to drive me mad that English literature was so separate from history, for example. And you'd bounce from one classroom to another with a completely different attitude and ethos from the teachers. And there was never any opportunity to put those things together. And I felt the same thing about science. I couldn't understand why I was learning, simply learning by rote theory and um, uh, and equations, etc., uh, describing physical processes that seem to have no relation to how we actually lived our lives. And I, I hope that they're not taught in those ways anymore, but they were when I was young. And so it's, those, it's, that, it's, that, um, it's the siloing of forms of knowledge and experience that, that really started to rankle with me. It reminds me of an anecdote. I, when I worked at uh, Belvoir in Sydney, my office, as it was, was literally under the sta- under the audience risers. Right. And uh, David Hare was being shown through the building by Neil Armfield. Uh, and as he walked past my desk, which was literally right next to the door, which was the vomitorium for the <laughs> theatre. <laughs> uh, and I remember David walked past and went, oh, it's the closest I've ever seen a literary manager to the stage. Oh, uh, that's interesting. And I thought he was I, – I, w- I didn't take kindly to that comment. Yeah. yeah. But for yeah. that very reason, though, and of course – when I had when I then went to the Royal Court, I realised what a terrible office the literary manager was in at the court. Yeah, it got much better. But metaphorically, yeah. that completely arbitrary separation yeah. and actually quite problematic um, distancing between theorising something yeah. or discussing something yeah. and actually putting it into yeah. practice as yeah. if they're separate things. Yeah, because the writers were then corralled in the literary manager's office <laughs> and, and they weren't given a lot of access to the, to the stage and the stage spaces as well. And... Uh, you know, I remember when um, Debbie Tucker Green. I, I was involved in in putting one of her first plays on when I was at Soho Theatre. And what was brilliant about her as a writer was that she was a stage manager, had been a stage manager, and so she arrived with such a, a deep and rich knowledge of of how things work in time and space, and that includes language. And so, in a way. Yeah, it was. I think it was insights that came from interdisciplinarians, if you like, like her, that gave me the confidence to start to ask questions about about why playwriting focuses on the W R I T E verb rather than the W R I G H T verb, um, which is which is entirely different. Uh, and is about making and the processes of making. And so so that once I was inside the theatre, I, I then had another journey to go on, which ultimately took me out of 
text-based theatre and into dance and movement forms because once you start something, you just got to keep going. Uh, before we move, yeah. uh, before we trip lightly out of the Royal Court Theatre, <laughs> was it because the office was so terrible or just because Jess Butterworth didn't want to sit inside it <laughs> that you were sitting on a broken roundabout discussing this great play he had about uh, England, that you were there as part of the kind of formation of that play of Jerusalem. Of Jerusalem. Well, yeah, no, I was I was the dramaturg on that as far as it involved dramaturgy. It, it did involve dramaturgy because everything does. Dramaturgy is just a process of of meaning making and everyone is doing it all the time. Um, but but I combined it with, with literary management, which is what often happens inside uh, theatres and theatre spaces. Uh, but, but yeah, I used to take literary meetings outside wherever possible. That was just a, a deep desire in me was to get out of offices and that somewhat depressing and, well, there's sort of the, the sense of inertia that is inevitable when you look at hundreds and hundreds of play scripts in folders, manila folders, uh, on shelves. And of course, that's what theatres hold and contain. And that's what becomes of so many writers and so many plays they they don't go beyond that that journey into an office space where they're shelved and literally um and so yeah i used to be outside as much as possible and there was a merry-go-round from a production that had been upstairs in the little yard that was at the back of the court uh and i remember ian rickson and jess butterworth and i each occupied one of the little uh, sections of the merry-go-round. I don't remember whether it turned. I'm not sure that it did because, of course, you know, it's a, it's a device. It's a prop. It's not meant to be real. Uh, <laughs> but we that was where we had a conversation, which, again, was, is linked into what, what went on with me subsequently and how my dramaturgical practice developed and changed, where... We were talking about Jez was this the play had been brought out back into service after having been written some years earlier and shelved, um, and we were talking about the central character Johnny Byron, who's a a, a traveller who lives in a a, a clearing um, in Britain and is threatened with eviction, of course, by a local council, which is wanting to develop the land that he lives on. And we knew that it was a play about a, a man who had been marginalised, but what we could also tell from the way that Jez writes and, the, and, and his love of Johnny Byron as a character, I think, was that he, he had given Johnny, or rather he had allowed Johnny to give himself status as, as a, a ruler in his own domain, if you like, and even though that domain was being uh, undermined all the time. And... The insight that we came to really collectively on that merry-go-round was that, that this was actually a Shakespearean tragedy. It had the same, within its own world, it had the same significance, the same scale of, of meaning and import. And and Johnny Byron was going to fight for and protect his, his territory, his terrain, with the same passion as, as Lear, say. And I think it's it's recognising, or what happened there was that we recognised that something can operate on several different levels of scale at the same time. And that was a really kind of liberating thought for me because it made me understand that, that the system of a play is richer and deeper and more complex than we sometimes give it credit for. And that 
also that there was a responsibility not just to represent Johnny Byron as a as a character, as an individual with an identity, but as a figure with relationships in in the space that he occupied. Uh, so this was a play that had chickens, live chickens in it, which also gave me great pleasure and brought my veterinary training back into play. <laughs> Finally come round there. Nice callback. Yep. Because I became the chicken minder. And so I kept them out the back and uh, would often have meetings with writers with a chicken on my lap. And those were my happiest days at the Royal Court. <laughs> a chicken is a very calming uh, thing to have on your lap when you're having a stressful conversation. So... From yeah, from about that time, actually, interestingly, uh, I let my frustration with the with the compartmentalizing of all the parts and the activities of theatre making, I let that kind of spill over into propelling me into an understanding or and and a long research and study into uh, the nature and the structures of living systems because I began to see a play from the moment of uh, inception as a living system, as a lively, living, vital collection of elements which are moving and changing and evolving in time and in space. And as soon as you start to think in those terms, like it or not, you are thinking ecologically. So... That then led me into an exploration of, of of what ecological thinking is and whether, in fact, there is a meaningful relationship between that way of thinking about the world and the living systems and structures of the world and this way of thinking about the liveliness of the art object, if you like, or, or process. And to put this into context and to hark back to <clears throat> the idea of what is dramaturgy, mm. did you feel that your understanding of rhetoric notwithstanding, whether it's Cicero or Horace, uh, but that that in thinking on this thing that you were actually doing, which yeah. was reading and responding yeah. to play texts, yeah. you understood that's sometimes described as dramaturgy, but did you feel you had the requisite learning? And, and what's so curious, and we've discussed it before, is that the rules that we had been using to this yeah. point, and most people still do use when it comes to theatre, uh, to use Aristotle's two and a half thousand year old yes. rules, yeah. which is based on a hierarchy where you look at plot first and then character yep. and diction and register and idiom and that sort of thing, uh, with 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 actors down the bottom of that list yeah. along with visual spectacle. Yeah. Um, did you feel that that it was actually better not to have known that stuff when you came to? looking at plays. Well, can I just say that I didn't know that stuff when I came to looking <laughs> at plays. I mean, I took it all out on Aristotle without having really deeply read him or the poetics. I had, of course, I had read the poetics. Um, it's as, only 40 pages. Yeah, it's pretty easy. It's, it would be, be embarrassing not to have. But I was immensely frustrated by my own understanding of what dramaturgy was. Let's start with the word. I, I mean, why we have to keep... When we're, when we're confused about something, we use a Greek word for it, a classical Greek, occasionally Latin term for it, and somehow that's supposed to explain it away. But dramaturgy never explained itself away, and it never has done. And, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> the number of other countries that I've arrived at the immigration office of only <laughs> to have to explain what I do for a living and 
you know, it would be it would be easier to say drug trafficker or something because <laughs> at least you could have a conversation. It's just it is a, it's a a weirdly mystifying word, and and that's partly because. It, we use it in so many different ways, and and that's the important thing. Did I, the, because the drama just just for for listeners to note that dramaturg itself is is a is a compound word made up of two ancient Greek words, uh, drama. We know what that is, uh, and ergon, which is or the worker, and so words like George, but also energetic or synergy, all derive from the same thing. But it fundamentally just means drama worker, mm. somebody who works in the drama. Or works with the actions. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and was coined in the late 18th century. But what so the, the fellow who did it, a guy called Lessing, who was a playwright, coined the word because he was hired by a theatre company to come and be the resident dramatist. He didn't want to do that because he, he thought his own writing was terrible <laughs> and he couldn't do it under pressure. So he was happy to turn up and write essays for the company about the company. The company lasted two years and then folded. So it was <laughs> still the, word the word is coined in a spirit of great optimism and then utter abject yeah, failure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but his one of his great horrors was that he had he loved Aristotle uh, and wanted Aristotle to be applied more in in the German states than he was, but was confused because. Um, what was happening in France was dominating European theatre at the time and they were adhering to this kind of uh, particular version of Aristotle, the three unities, and every play had to observe these unities and yet Shakespeare didn't observe those unities. And so how on earth do you uh, reconcile Greek theatre with mm. Shakespeare and mm. then with contemporary practice? Mm. And so the word dramaturgy itself was was created in this furnace of confusion and doubt and yeah. failure and idealism, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. kind of summarises kind of where you're at yeah. actually in your That's practice. That's really true. I mean, I spent a lot of time looking for an alternative word, not not just not to get out of doing what it is that dramaturgs do, but it, but to help me understand what it is that they do. And and the word dramaturg, dramaturgy just didn't do that. I, there is a phrase that that helps me. I don't use it publicly because it sounds just as absurd in some ways as dramaturg. But that is performance ecology, and and I, I I've settled with that. Well, there are many words actually that I use to describe what it is that I do. What I what I try to avoid is using a word to describe what it is that I officially am. Um, because for me, dramaturgy is always and only a relationship. It, it just doesn't exist in in the living um, presence or being of an individual separate from the thing that that person is doing. So I think it's it, there's a there's a discomfort in your own skin in thinking of yourself. Well, this is what I felt as a dramaturg when my dramaturgical role only came into being when I was in relation with a writer, a text, uh, or a director, or, or an audience, or a community, or a space. <laughs> there are so many forms of relationship that actually entail dramaturgical thinking if you are entering into a creative partnership uh, in any of those fields or with any of those individuals. So you got to the end of your time at the court and went, I can never read another play. I'd rather chew glass. Well, I did read. I read 30 plays a week for 15 years. <laughs> and do you think it was a good idea for me to take a break? <laughs> was it a good idea for the writers that I take a break? I, it's the best thing I've ever done was to take that break because it's completely 
um, reinvigorated my my love of text, uh, but text now within uh, process and part and as part of the the working of the whole system of the piece. So, uh, yeah, I to, in order to achieve that, in order to get away from the the simple frustration of of dramaturgical practice as a a theorized literary practice. I I just turned myself and my life towards the liveliness of making. And then just on that, just yeah. to, to hark back momentarily to Aristotle, but that the kind of fundamental, the rudimentary part of what people think dramaturgy is, there's a kind of analytical component, but it's in, mostly seen as entirely literary. Yes. That it is yeah. about, let's look at the words on the page. Absolutely. So it's usually seen as someone who will come and fix something probably to do with the words, maybe to do with research, yeah. but but applying that compart- the, the, the effort yeah. of compartmentalisation. Yeah. How does character work? How does the yeah. plot work? Yeah. And you, you rip open this living thing, <laughs> kill it yeah. while you get to examine it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and fix it, put yeah. it back together yeah. like the $6 billion yeah. man or I mean, woman. of course, dramaturgy is virtually never practiced like that. Uh, if it is, run a mile. <laughs> what? It absolutely oh, no, don't tell Brad. <laughs> shouldn't be <laughs> but but i completely agree that that is that is the understanding of it that has been but also that the work itself arrives broken yeah that is it is somehow innately enfeebled oh yeah. uh, until dramaturgical practice yeah. is brought to bear yeah. genius or dramaturgical practice because there's the other version of dramaturgy which is the idiot who gets in the way yeah that either yeah. it's about the application of rules yeah. or it's about the intervention yeah, of oneself right. and kind of one's yeah. narcissism. And not helped by dramaturgs and script editors who have, have uh, inserted themselves under the heading script doctor. Oh. Yeah, I think that's a, a really big mistake. Um, yes, yes, you may be working together towards the health of, of a work, but that's health in the sense of wholeness, which is what health actually means. So I like the I look I learned more about dramaturgy from working in dance in non-text based forms only because of it, it freed me completely from any hint of literary um oppression <laughs> or or having to to stand on the shoulders of the literary theorists it, it because it was it, you know, it took me directly into the realms of of movement and meaning which is is what I believe dramaturgy uh, does is is consider those the relationship the constantly changing relationship between those two things, um, but it also moving out of and away from text allowed me to understand so much more about what is happening within text-based theatre as well and to return to these look it's good to get back to to etymological origins of things to remember. Um, that they they may have they may have originated in a different way of thinking, and we've forgotten or we've displaced that way of thinking. And text comes from the Latin textus, which means network or web, yeah, interconnection. To weave, to Text weave, era, yes. exactly. So once you start to to rethink the 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 habits that we've fallen into pretty recently in the ways in which we make theatre, you you're restored to something that is. It's it's a far more open, dynamic field of practice, and I am much much happier in that in that 
place where the attention is to process itself, to the unfolding and becoming of things, to patterns and their disruption, all forms of change. Uh, it becomes a, a field of knowledge and of practice, um, which which has existed within Indigenous performance making for tens of thousands of years. It's just, it's taking non-Indigenous practitioners like me a long time to get back to that place of considering and behaving as though the work itself is alive and that it is, all of its parts are in relation to one another in the same way that any ecological system is. Um, it's that it's that sense of contingency and interconnectedness that that I feel very strongly about and about supporting. It, uh, what I was going to say was that Jonathan Burroughs, the choreographer, one of his he's got hundreds of definitions of everything. That's what's brilliant about him, uh, because that's truthful. But he one of his definitions of dramaturgy is is um, is a, a means of supporting. Uh, a maker of whatever kind to to pursue their intentions most strongly and courageously. So it's not about fixing; it's about it's about bringing forth, um, uh, delivering. It's more, yeah. In some ways, it's closer to midwifery dramaturgy, I think, than uh, than to. I don't mean to put another medical <laughs> label on it, but midwifery is a beautiful art that has been sidelined by the medical establishment and displaced and actually is an ancient, ancient form of, of knowledge and practice. So let, actually let's go back to midwifery. It's a good thing. Uh, but I want, I want my dramaturgical practice not just to be uh, an application of theory but to be a craft of living itself, something that can be applied to all living systems. Why would we separate the making of art from any other system of, uh, that, is, that comes into being, evolves, uh, changes, uh, its pattern shifts, it becomes something new? This is what happens all the time at every level of scale throughout the world that we inhabit. So when you walked away from the court and had your time away, yeah. did you walk towards, in trying to find a better metaphor, mm. uh, a better theory to encompass what it is we actually mm. do, was it towards biology or was it towards mathematics? You know, or, you know, because they're all looking for theories to describe the world in which we live yeah, in, a, in a better way. It's than... a good question. It, uh, inevitably, it becomes both. What what I started with was because I because I was frustrated with the idea that a play doesn't live, and I and I knew deeply, viscerally that it did. I I honestly had to ask myself, well, what what is life? What is a living system? If I'm going to call it a living system, I have to know what that means. And I didn't really have any idea, just a vague biological sense of it. But so I started on a pathway of study and research and conversation with physicists and biologists and marine biologists. I happened to be working in uh, in the field of climate change at that time. So there were scientists all over the place and that was great. And a lot of them were working with weather, uh, which was really great because that then became perhaps uh, the strongest core metaphor for how I conceive of uh, dramaturgical process and also the process by which a play itself or a, or a performance work 
um, evolves. It, it is weatherly. Um, things things move and change and reach crises uh, and resolve or disperse or destroy their their context and their circumstances at that at that point of crisis. There, there's these structures that that we think of um, in in literary terms are all around us in the world and we are embedded in them and they influence everything that we do and think. The the uh, theatre maker and dramaturg uh, Eugenio Barber says that uh, both uh, physics and uh, natural sciences and physics offer far more guidance and insight uh, into dramaturgical process than literary theory. And, uh, and I came across that after years of doing this and thought, ah, it, I, it's right. What I'm doing is the right thing to be doing for me because my tendency is to want to work across domains uh, and, and working in accordance with the knowledges that have been developed you could say in the last 40 years or so within the natural sciences and physics in particular, and these are the knowledges of chaos and complexity, those to me are, as far as there's any theory behind my work, it draws its inspiration from that, from that field of science, that science which is known as the sciences of change. Perfect. Perfect. Let's find out how change works in the real world because we're in the real world. But also you were on a boat. You were on a boat in the Arctic looking at giant ice sheets with with cool guitar players and scientists. Briefly I was doing that, yeah. But the scientists were the ones who really made the difference because they gave me an understanding of the fact that the processes that happen, the processes of change that happen and that are accelerating globally – happen at every level of scale. So what's happening at the at the smallest level of of an ice cube is happening at the level of the Greenland ice sheet as well. And understanding that these processes that there are only certain things that can happen in the universe. That's <laughs> unfortunately that's how it is and how it will always be until the whole system shuts down. We work with and we live within these corridors of possibility that are made, they're made possible by, they're held in place by universal laws, like like the first and second laws of thermodynamics, um, which suggest, and hasn't been disproved yet, uh, that energy isn't created or destroyed, it's simply transformed. And crucially, that over time, in the most, this is the most generalised accounting of it, things fall apart. The, the understanding of entropy is that over time, everything falls apart, becomes exhausted. Its useful energy is lost into the universe and can't be retrieved and made to work to create form anymore. But within that universal knowledge is a really, really important special feature of reality and it's called life. <laughs> and we're in it. And it's rare and precious and beautiful and it briefly in the case of the individual, but for billions of years, in the case of life itself, holds 
this collapse, this falling apart at bay. So we can form is created, structure is created, things exist in time and space, but they're always under pressure. They're always at risk of falling apart. And and what a beautiful description of a play, of the things that we expect and often find happening in a play. I love that description that you have of a play, that it's a, a system for putting bodies under pressure. Yeah, well, and uh, Tennessee Williams described it as as putting human beings in the thundercloud of a common crisis. So weather, it's there. Shakespeare knew it. He, he had no qualms at all about bringing weather directly into the work. But, of course, it operates at every level metaphorically as well. You can have a vast storm, a tempest, or, or you can have a storm in a teacup and you're still telling the same story about the universal structures of of turbulence and complexity and chaos that are part of how we live, relate to and are changed by one another. So it, questions of scale become really interesting and really relevant because you can you can do the same thing at completely different levels of scale. And there's enormous power in this understanding, I think. There's power and there's imaginative capacity. Once you begin to see that that there are structures and archetypal forms within the world, within every system on earth, you can you can draw on them, you can disturb them, you can release them into process and and you can let the pattern that they produce play itself out in fascinating and complex ways. It just it gives you languages and metaphors and ways of thinking both about the work itself and about the process by which the work is made. And those two things really matter and they and they run alongside one another in and they intersect in complex ways, but they each have their own dramaturgy. There's a dramaturgy of the process and there's the dramaturgy of the work. And they both as far as I'm concerned, rely on these dynamic structures that exist throughout the universe, uh, structures of uh, that relate to uh, some of these structures are, for example, the spiral form or turbulence, which can be expressed uh, structurally or in through language or through movement, uh, metaphorically, literally, in many, many different ways. A spiral form is one. The synchrony is another really important universal form that emerges. It's not created by any leader. It emerges naturally out of the world everywhere. But it plays an enormous part, in obviously, in dance works. But actually it's there everywhere throughout theatre as well. And uh, Anne Bogart, the director, says that really all theatre begins and ends with the, with the human heartbeat, which, is the, which, is a, 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 which generates a, a kind of synchrony with an audience. And in fact, it's a literal synchrony. They did, they did research at University of London or somewhere and, and discovered that when there's a, a, a crisis or an emotional moment in a, in a play the heartbeats of the audience briefly synchronise. We are all within these universal patterns and processes. And so to become more attentive to them in that way that Mary Oliver, the poet, says, to, to, um, to pay attention, that is our endless and proper work. So working with the sciences gave me new pathways 
and new forms of awareness which allowed me to be more attentive. And is that how you work? I mean, it's quite, as you said, easy to imagine in dance the idea of shapes and a kind of topographical thinking around how a body moves, uh, but also works of scale. So you can do something on a tiny micro level, which can also expand so quickly within one body, but also go from one body to 20 bodies. Exactly. And is that, these are the kind of conversations you're having with Akram Khan? They're they're very often those kinds of conversations. I mean, uh, and I didn't impose any of this on Akram because he has such a a deep intuitive understanding of biomechanics and and of the body in the world that... And and also of the uh, of the ethics and the philosophy really of an ancient movement craft which he practices, which is Kathak dance. So it's really easy to have those conversations with him and with Maven Koo, his rehearsal director, who's also he's a Bharatanatyam dancer, uh, about cycles. Uh, because the, because uh, the entire cosmology and cosmography of of Indian uh, work is based on structure the structure of the cycle, and so uh, great works like the Mahabharata, which Akram uses a lot as the sort of origin stories for some of his work, uh, they play out endless endless cycles and repetitions of forms of human behavior they 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 play out patterns so that we can understand them as patterns and recognize ourselves within them which is really the aim of those texts like the mahabharata so it it's easy to have those conversations with akram about chaos and complexity he's got a deep intuitive understanding of them about turbulence and um feedback how how within a system i mean just watch the social dilemma if you really want to understand how feedback works <laughs> and how dangerous it can be, um, how, how destructive as well as productive. But every complicated or complex system feeds back on itself. So once the form of a work is created, it then begins to inform itself in ways that can exacerbate or or dampen down whatever that behaviour is. And that's a really useful important process to understand one of the reasons why we've got so lost inside the vortex of of violence and hatred in social media is that we don't understand how we are being spun in a system that's feeding back on itself how we've got locked inside that process and and how we might disturb it or step out of it in order to free ourselves from from being moved rather than choosing the nature of our movement. So there's real... I remember when I started to talk about um, living systems and chaos and complexity, a, a guy came up to me at Sadler's Wells after a workshop and he said that has changed my life. And I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> a new dramaturg. That's so exciting, he said, because I have very serious problems with anger. And I, I now I can understand my anger in relation to the structures of a chaotic system, a system that is uh, spinning out of control or seems to be or moving in a very unpredictable, sudden way. A very small thing can lead to a very big outcome, which is a fundamental insight of chaos theory. I had never thought that that might also be an insight that could relate to anger management, for example. So that that meant a lot to me because, I, and I thought, good because I want this to be meaningful throughout our our lives, and not only in 
theatre spaces and rehearsal spaces because what's true of theatre and dance must be true of the world that we live in. Otherwise, they're, they're simply se- segregated forms of experience and, and, they, and they shouldn't be and we can't afford to let them be. What's also interesting here is that one of the kind of uh, bedrock ideas in theatre, and it's really about marketing and promotion rather than than the work itself, but is the idea of this solitary genius. Yeah. That someone like Akram is a solitary genius. Yeah. They come out of nowhere. They have they yeah. are this lightning rod yeah. for ideas. That's and obviously so the playwright or the director, we need to sell these people and their their uh, their genius yeah. and their insight. But hearing you describe the way Akram works, but obviously you've worked with a number of Fantastic playwrights, directors, uh, and other choreographers yeah, too. Yeah. Um, is the way that they're able to bring together this idea of tradition, yes, and this this centuries yep. old practices, yep. patterns, and repetition, yep. and that working you with him thinking about science, but also thinking about the tradition and the yeah. skill they bring exactly. is actually where work comes from. It's yeah. a very different version of where work comes from. It, that it's it this really, extraordinary really collaborative. Yeah theme where yeah. everybody's building. That's it. right. And he, I mean, Akram is absolutely clear about that. Uh, total, total collaboration. There, There is no point at which you can say that any part of the work, I mean, of course he has danced it uh, and his training has involved 30, 40 years of, of deep, deep repetitive process uh, and rigour. And, and rigour is very important in developing a... a, a a deep practice, but the work that that reaches people and enters into them and into their lives and minds is made by all of us and by them too. So ambiguity is a really valuable and precious part of process with him, um, with us as makers, because that's the place where it's the threshold where the audience meets the work and is invited to participate in making meaning out of it. And that means not hammering meaning down uh, and thrusting it down people's throats. That's why critics get very frustrated and angry sometimes with with contemporary dance works um, or, or with any work because they haven't really got time for ambiguity. They might be having to see several shows in a week and ambiguity asks that you live with and sit with, potentially with discomfort, in order to reach some kind of understanding with yourself uh, and some kind of incorporation of the work itself. And that idea of the uh, the solitary genius, it, it makes me angry because it's connected to the whole idea of human exceptionalism. So it's sort of exceptionalism within exceptionalism. There's something <laughs> so super special about certain people, which is not to say that people don't have immense aptitude and tendencies towards... extraordinary um, manifestations of particular skills, but they tend to have built those skills over a long period of time and they tend, and Stephen Johnson's book Where Good Ideas Come From is a lovely way of, of getting that idea of the solitary genius right out of your head because he makes such a clear and strong argument that virtually all of the great movements forward in imaginative thinking, in cultural practice and in technology, in humanity, have come from putting things beside each other. They've come from tinkering and foraging and someone having the, the time being ready for 
a curious person to take an existing technology or form and smash it up against something else that it has not been put against before. And he calls it the adjacent possible. And I, it's a beautiful, lovely idea to work with, concept to work with. Uh, put there's, things against other things and see what emerges. There's a terrific novelist from Sydney, Sue Wolfe, uh, and she wrote a book about having writer's block. Yeah. Uh, and in the book she was, you know, very disappointed in herself that she couldn't finish this novel uh, and that the way she worked was fundamentally wrong because mm. writing meant sitting down at your desk and mm-hmm. working for eight hours a day mm-hmm. on an idea uh, and she, she was not doing that. Yeah. Uh, and on further investigation, she found out, of course, that's uh, not necessarily, yes. that's just the way it's yeah, been yeah. sold, yeah. Uh, that th- that's how you should work. Yeah. But one of the, um, some of the thinkers that she came across were this husband and wife uh, neurosurgeon team, the Damasios. Oh, and yeah, the, Antonio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, the term they use to describe that, which is often that innovation happens when you're daydreaming yeah. and that actually going for a walk that's or going right. to a gallery or just not doing anything, not trying to walk, not trying to work yeah. uh, is where good ideas come yeah. from, and they call yeah. it loose construing, right. allowing your your thoughts yeah, to dissociate. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, um, and you come up with an iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> Charles Darwin used to do it. He used to walk around a little sandy path in his garden, and he said that ideas would come to him not because he was searching for them, but because they would run across his path, and that idea might be his daughter or a, a, a fox or a leaf falling from a tree. Some kind of interruption to the pattern that he'd established would often send him off on a new pathway. Thoreau called it extravagant sauntering, and I really love that. But I also know that you're quite interested in the idea of threshold moments. You mentioned it before Very. about that moment between audience yeah. and performer yeah, yeah. or work and performer, it's ideas and It's the most interesting audience. place in the world is the edge and, and trying to turn an edge into a threshold by making it wider and allowing more, more presences within it. Um, that's a really good practice to be involved in, uh, in performance or in any field. Um, yeah, I love I love the edge and the opportunities that the edge provides, and that in a way also came to me through uh, ecological thinking because because edges, um, whether you're talking about literal zones on uh, on ocean shores or the edge between uh, different ecological uh, systems, uh, they're they're known as the richest places on earth. They're the place where things meet. It's not surprising. Um, uh, I'm not talking about hard borders. Uh, I'm talking about edges where, where which are porous to one another, and they're places of they're queer places. They're they're places of extraordinary opportunism and resilience, where knowledges get exchanged, where where new things come into being. So to to see and look for edges within the work as well as within the process by which the work meets its audiences, and to try and spend your energy in that place to make that place more lively, more complex, uh, to, for it to provide more opportunities for encounter. Uh, you, you've, got to have a, you've got to have patience to work on edges because the whole point about an edge is that it's, it's, the, it's the most extended meeting place between one system and another. And, and actually, I think the, the work, the ethic, in, should involve expanding the edge wherever you can, which comes from permaculture. Um, a really lovely insight or one of the 12 principles of permaculture 
is is to extend the edge wherever possible, to, to value the marginal, which is something that we need to do from a dominant culture. We need to not just value the marginal but, but step out of the centre and that we've defined around ourselves uh, and recognise that life happens on the edges of things. That's where n- new life begins. It's where all life began. It's the only place where change is possible. Well, it's certainly where scientists now think we went from being, uh, you know, where, where the biological actually was born. That's And right. we talked about this last week, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, around those black smokers in the ocean yeah. where at that interface between the volcanic, yeah. uh, uh, you know, where the geological actually gave birth to life around those this extraordinary moment of acid meeting yeah. base, yeah. around a sphere, yep. that that edge created what we now understand as probably the first amoeba. Yeah, the first cell. The first yeah. cell happens at that moment, That's around right. this extraordinary yeah. moment of acid and base yeah. and volcano yeah. and uh, you know, fire and water, yeah. literally and what a, all of the things in every mythology. beautiful example of, of the adjacent possible. Yeah, that's really true, actually. It is. It's, it's sort of the, the root of, of many mythologies, that, that understanding, really, that, that life begins and develops in, on the edges of things. But also, it is quite funny for a dramaturg to be saying that's what the edge. The edge is the interesting stuff because that's where we mostly are on the edges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's. I mean, that's by choice for me. That's, but, but at I, that point of interface, there. yeah, yeah, I, between I all it. of these different disciplines that we've talked yeah. about today, yeah, vet yeah. science, yeah. physicists, yeah. Uh, choreographers, yep. writers, yep. you're able to somehow traverse and translate. Yeah. These different languages. Yeah, which is also an edge, an edge activity. Absolutely, thresholding. Thresholding is is another word for dramaturgy. That actually, let's go with that. It's it's shorter than performance ecology. <laughs> let's let's just be thresholders. Well, who wouldn't want to be? Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. <laughs> She's now Thanks. got a title for her book. Finally, <laughs> this McGeorge thing has really worked out quite well. Uh, I think that maybe uh, kind of uh, all we have time for. We're now at the very hard edge of uh, all the ideas you can possibly have. Uh, at this podcast but uh, thanks so much Ruth it's lovely to have you back in Australia for a while so lovely to be back in Australia my beautiful beautiful place of birth in the heat in the rain the heat and the cold yeah you get it all in Melbourne that's for sure Uh, so thanks so much for spending this time to learn a little bit about the joys and sorrows uh, the insights uh, of dramaturgy and the work we do at MTC Thank you for listening. You can learn more about this recording and explore a range of other theatrical delights at mtc.com.au.